Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Today's, to today's uh, webinar on the Defense uh, Production Act. And thank you for taking time out of your day to join uh, me and my colleague, uh, General Tom Spore. We have a unique format for uh, today's uh, webinar. Uh, we don't have a moderator. Our colleague, John Malcolm, has Wi-Fi issues. And so I'm gonna be dual-headed. I'll be the moderator and also uh, one of the panelists uh, along with Tom. Um, the format, uh, for today's webinar is quite simple. Uh, Tom is going to kick things off after I introduce him uh, and spend about 10 minutes with us, uh, giving us the broad overview of the Defense Production Act. He's written a significant uh, paper on that topic, uh, which I encourage you to read. He'll go into that during his presentation. Uh, after Tom uh, finishes his remarks, I'm going to cover a different aspect of the Defense Production Act and put it into a legal context, but not try to bore you with a bunch of legalese. Uh, after that, uh, we want to open up uh, this program like we do all heritage programs to your questions, uh, which you will type uh, into a box there on your computer. And I'll tell you more about exactly how to do that uh, at, the, uh, at that point in the program. The whole program should take about 45 minutes, including the Q&A. Now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my good friend and colleague, uh, General Tom Spore. He's the director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation where he leads the defense research effort. He is a 36-year veteran of the United States Army, uh, where he retired from in 2016 at, as the rank, at the rank of a three-star, a lieutenant general. While he was in the Army, he focused on equipment modernization, defense budgets, and business processes. His military specialty was chemical, biological, and nuclear defense, and positions in that regard Include, included Commandant of the Army's School for those subjects. In 2019, General Spore and another Heritage colleague uh, authored a paper on the Defense Production Act. Tom, over to you. Thank you very much, Cully, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us. I hope you all are coping and adjusting well. Uh, I'll talk for about 10 minutes, then Cully will talk and we'll be happy to take your questions. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to learn from you as well. I don't consider myself an expert on the Defense Production Act, I am still learning. You know, until about a month and a half ago, uh, if you had mentioned the Defense Production Act in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else in the United States, uh, you would have gotten a blank stare, maybe a yawn. It's, you know, it's a relatively arcane piece of legislation that many people kind of associate with the Cold War or earlier. And as Cully mentioned, wrote a paper back in October on this. You can find it uh, on the internet, if you just search on heritage in the Defense Production Act. Uh, after it came out in October, I got notes from about two or three people that actually follow the Defense Production Act 
But other than that, the paper uh, generally landed without a ripple in the big pond of Washington, D.C. Well, contrast that from with today, where you can find the Defense Production Act on the lips of senators and representatives. And just yesterday, the New York Times uh, published a story on it, and other newspapers and media are doing the same. A lot of these uh, stories carry a sensationalist tone. Uh, they want to know why isn't the president being more aggressive and vigorous in using the Defense Production Act? And we'll talk about that. Uh, Defense Production Act, as you probably know, came into effect in 1950 when the Truman administration uh, found that they lacked the necessary authorities to prosecute uh, the Korean War. It's been reauthorized 50 times since then, and every time it gets reauthorized, or not every time, but many times it's been uh, modified and tweaked along the way. These uh, modifications have taken the really two basic forms. One has, they have kind of removed over time some of the authorities that were in the uh, original Defense Production Act, such as requisitioning, rationing, uh, wage and price uh, fixing, and labor disputes. And then the other uh, revision that's happened over time is they have broadened the definition of national defense. The definitions start out very narrow, national defense, fighting the nation's wars, that type of thing. Over time, over the various reauthorizations, Congress has broadened the definition to include energy security, uh, space security, uh, emergency preparedness. Um, not all of this, in my opinion, has been helpful. And just an example of that, I think in the 2012, the 2014 timeframe, uh, President Obama used the Defense Production Act to funnel about $200 million uh, into a biofuels uh, initiative, you know, to make uh, petroleum products diesel out of things like corn and grass. And so that, that really didn't go anywhere. And I don't think it really fit what we really would envision as proper use of the Defense Production Act. Of the Defense Production Act, there were seven original titles. Only three remain, Titles One, Title Three, and Title Seven. So let's talk about these and then we'll clear up a few misperceptions, if you will. Title One uh, contains what most people call the priorities and the allocation authorities. And the priority authority allows the federal government to ensure the timely available of critical materials, equipment, and services produced in the private market and to receive those items through contract before any other customer in the private sector. That's the priorities. The allocations authority gives the president to allocate or control the general distribution of materials, services, and facilities. So as you can maybe expect, the Department of Defense has been the most frequent user of Title I authorities. They typically use the authority that the president has delegated them to insert clauses in contracts that give the contract a priority, meaning that the recipient of the contract must prioritize the delivery of the good or the service over all other customer desires. In the DOD, with which I'm most familiar with, this usually takes the form of a rating, which is inserted into the contract, usually by contracting officers. Uh, there are two kinds of ratings. There is a DO rating, which is a priority rating under the Defense Production Act. And then there is a DX rating, which is the highest priority on the Defense Production Act that DOD uses. Uh, I haven't gone back way far in time. I was in the Pentagon at the time when the Secretary of Defense awarded the MRAP program, the DX priority, the highest priority, meaning those companies that were tasked to produce the MRAP had to put that over every single other priority they had in their company. I think 
The Pentagon also used the DX rating in order to uh, obtain body armor for troops in the first Iraq war. Again, asking them to prioritize those deliveries over law enforcement, any other uh, claimant on uh, Kevlar type body armor. That's DOD. The, uh, the federal government, other uh, departments use uh, these contract ratings. Um, for comparison, DHS used uh, rated contracts about 2,000 times, but in the DOD in 2018, uh, they used a rated contract about 300,000 times. So orders of magnitude more used by the DOD. Uh, let's talk for a moment now about how Title I is being used right now. As you're familiar with, probably the on March 18th, the president signed Executive Order 13909, delegating his authority for the priorities uh, authority to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And this is commonly, uh, after that particular news conference, people said that the president had invoked uh, the Defense Production Act. About five days later, on March 23rd, the president signed Executive Order 13910, again giving the Secretary of the Health and Human Services his authority under the Allocations Authority under Title I to stop hoarding and price gouging for medical equipment and supplies. So this allows Secretary Azar to have extraordinary authority over the use of raw materials and supplies within his purview medical area uh, in the private sector. I think they have used that once now where they found uh, somebody was hoarding uh, medical equipment and they um, use that authority to stop that. And then finally, four days later on March 27th, the president signed a memorandum directing Secretary Azar to quote, use any and all authority available under the act to require the General Motors Company to accept, perform and prioritize contractor orders for the numbers of ventilators that the secretary deems to be appropriate. Secretary Azar already had that authority under the earlier executive order 13909. So from my perspective, this looks like a, hey, Secretary Azar, you have this authority. Now, doggone it, use it, pull the trigger. Uh, so that's Title I, Priorities and Allocations Authority. It's likely, I think, probably that every single contract that's being written today, either by FEMA, DHS, or the Pentagon, has a priority rating in it, requiring that whoever uh, accepts that contract, gets that contract, must prioritize it over all other uh, requirements. So let's talk about Title III of the DPA. Title III allows the president to provide direct grants and loans uh, to maintain and expand the production capacity of domestic sources that are needed for um, national defense. Again, DOD has been up to this point the most frequent user of Title III authorities and has been using that authority to provide money to increase selected areas of the defense industrial base, typically in accounts in amounts less than uh, $50 million. Uh, in the last year or two, DOD has used Title III authority to reinforce our ability to have access to rare earths, explosive, propellants, and lithium seawater batteries. Typically, DOD asks for about $50 million, or excuse me, $30 million per year for the DPA fund, which is where the Title III grants come from. They have not used loans in any kind of recent history in 2020, the DOD asked for $34 million for the DPA Title III Fund. In terms of recent activity, 
and related to Title III authorities, the 880-page CARES Act does a couple of things for the Title III fund. First, and probably most importantly, it puts a billion dollars towards it. Uh, that's, that's unprecedented. I, I suspect the D Defense Production Act has never had a billion dollars allocated towards it. And I would anticipate most of that money will go towards expanding the capacity for manual medical manufacturing of supplies and equipment, vaccines perhaps, therapeutics as well. And then secondly, the CARES Act, and I didn't, you know, I hadn't gone through all 880 pages, removes limits on DPA funding and reporting requirements. And then finally, in current developments concerning the Title III authorities, on March 27th, the president signed a third executive order dealing with the DPA, Executive Order 13911, delegating his Title III authorities to Secretary Azar and uh, the Secretary of DHS. DHS appropriate because uh, they control FEMA and FEMA's writing a lot of contracts right now. Uh, these secretaries now have the ability to make direct investments in U.S. companies um, to increase their capacity. You know, ordinarily, you could not just give uh, $50 million, $100 million to 3M or something like that. That would be an unfair kind of thing. Uh, this gives the president the authority to do that. Normally, uh, these authorities are, that Title III authority is not delegate, delegatable, uh, but in terms of national emergency, which obviously the president declared, uh, he can delegate this authority. So that's title, we've talked about Title I, we've talked about Title III. Title, the last title of the DPA is Title VII, which is really a grab bag of authorities, if you will. Uh, most probably pertinent for the situation finds itself, the country finds itself in today is the ability to enter into voluntary agreements with companies. So if you've been watching the news, you see where numbers of companies have been volunteering to help uh, the country make things like, <coughs> excuse me, N95 masks, uh, ventilators, hand sanitizer. And, you know, ordinarily, um, you couldn't just go to the White House and say, I'd like to make hand sanitizer, and the White House would say, sure, here's $10 million, go knock yourself out. Um, you'd have to compete, you'd have to advertise, you'd have to compete such an opportunity. Uh, you know, this clause allows you to circumvent. Uh, get around that and not have to go through that entire uh, laborious contracting process. So that's that's the Defense Production Act, ladies and gentlemen, Titles 1, 3, and 7. The other, if anybody asked you what became of Title 2, it left long ago along with 4 and 5 and 6. Uh, so uh, kind of summing up, I think the Defense Production Act is an appropriate tool for use in this particular national emergency. I think it's I am certain and know it's being used now, and I suspect we will see it used to a greater extent as this uh, emergency situation continues. So just to kind of close out, I want to hit two common misperceptions that you'll find in the media. Misperception number one is that the country, the president, is not using the Defense Production Act. I would tell you that probably every single contract that DOD and DHS and FEMA and HHS is writing right now to obtain equipment is a rated contract using the authority of the Defense Production Act to tell companies to put this order in front of any other customer. And so if they had a, a an order from some other country or some other company for an N95 mask, this that rated order would take precedence over it. And then a, another misperception that we can hit probably hit more in the Q&A section, and that is the perception that using the Defense Production Act will get faster 
or better results. My belief is that planned economies where you have a central authority dictating production rates and quantities and types of goods typically performs less effectively than when the market identifies a need, provides funding, and then gets out of the way. So you can think back to the Stalinist view of tractor plant number five being given a, a production quantity by Moscow saying you must produce 200 tractors per year and the, the workers in the factory saying, hey, we could easily produce 300 tractors if Moscow let us. I think, I think that is the wrong way to go, especially in the early stages of this crisis. You know, in, over the course of the last two weeks, we have seen dozens of companies like Ford and Toyota offer to partner with with uh, medical equipment manufacturers to make ventilators. We have seen companies like Honeywell, 3M, MyPillow, Hanes, Jockey, and many others offer to make masks, either N95 or cotton surgical masks. And we've got companies like Anheuser-Busch, uh, Bacardi, offering to make hand sanitizer with the ethyl alcohol that they have on hand. And the list goes on and on. And so no central office in Washington, D.C., in my view, especially at this stage of the crisis, could do a better job of mobilizing U.S. industry uh, to take care of this crisis. Now, uh, the White House, for whatever reason, chose to make an example out of General Motors uh, and very publicly directed them to start making ventilators with this uh, medical equipment manufacturer. I'm not sure exactly why that is. You could, you could use the uh, Ned Stark theory and say, hey, you, you know, Let's cut off the head of Ned Stark and put it on a pike outside the castle. And that'll be a signal to everybody else that you don't want to uh, buck the administration on this. I don't know. Um, but I think you could certainly would not disagree that it's making a big difference in it. It's persuading probably some companies that may have been more comfortable sitting on the sideline to actually get in this game and to offer their services uh, in, the, in the time of this national emergency. I think, ladies and gentlemen, I'll stop there. And now I'll look forward to your questions a little bit later. I have the honor now to introduce my colleague, uh, Cully Stimson. Cully Stimson is a senior legal fellow and manager of the National Security Law Program here at Heritage. He specializes in national security, homeland security, immigration, crime control, and drug policy. Prior to joining Heritage, he served as a deputy assistant secretary of defense and assistant United States attorney and is a 27-year veteran of the Navy where he continues to serve as a captain in the JAG Corps Reserves, where he's a commanding officer. So over to you, Cully. Well, thank you, Tom. That was an outstanding overview of the Defense Production Act. One of the neat things about working in a think tank is, although you may come into the think tank with a certain level of specialty in certain areas, you get to dive deep into certain issues. And Tom uh, certainly has done a, a wonderful job uh, on his paper on the Defense Production Act, and I encourage each of you uh, after the program today to read it and send it to other folks who are talking about it. Um, and rather than cover uh, the same ground, uh, which we're, don't worry, I won't, or drill down further into the specifics of the act, I thought it might be more interesting to start by laying out the interplay between state and federal law as a way of demonstrating that the Defense Production Act is not the magic bullet. Uh, that uh, some people are pretending it is or has to be. And then instead of giving you a boring lecture on the law, and I'll, I'll grant Tom an honorary law license because you did a good job on the contracting bit there, 
Uh, I thought it'd be more interesting to hear about how the invocation of the Defense Production Act works in practice uh, from the perspective of the federal government and then also the perspective of a federal contractor. And I got this from, from a, a long discussion with a senior partner uh, at a major law firm who specializes in, above all things, <laughs> government contracting and the Defense Production Act. Uh, first, let's talk about the interplay between federal and state law and how that applies to the fight against the virus. Uh, and I wrote about this uh, with a good friend uh, and constitutional scholar, David Rivkin, in uh, the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago. And Heritage has a webpage, which I encourage you all to go to, uh, about the coronavirus and everything Heritage scholars have written about it. It's heritage.org front slash coronavirus. Uh, and the article has been reprinted on that webpage, and it's called quote, a constitutional guide to emergency powers, unquote. Now, uh, the states play a major, if not the major role in fighting the virus. Obviously, the doctors and nurses are the, are the, have the boots on the ground, but the states, through their governors, play a major role, more so than the Defense Production Act, I would argue. And each state has a state constitution uh, under which the governor of that state has the executive power. Uh, and a primary responsibility of a state is to provide for the health and safety of its residents. States have police power, and as you know, the federal government does not have police power under the U.S. Constitution. Police power enables governors to enforce state laws up to and including the use of enforcement, uh, law enforcement to enforce state edicts uh, and laws and state executive orders. And so we see today governors in most states issuing uh, stay-at-home warnings at first, and now executive orders uh, to tell people to stay at home uh, via, via executive orders. Uh, and they have the state constitutional authority to enforce those orders uh, by threatening arrest or fining people, and yes, even uh, jailing people if they violate those orders. But what a state cannot do, uh, and this is the tie into the Defense Production Act, the state cannot order a private company, especially one headquartered outside of the state, to produce products that the state wants. Um, the federal government, on the other hand, uh, is a government of limited enumerated power. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, uh, but that's what it's designed to be. Uh, and it's not the job of the federal government uh, to protect the health and safety of citizens of the many states. Uh, the president, who has the executive power under Article 2, of the Constitution takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic, but the health of the citizens is the primary job of the governors. How does this tie into the Defense Production Act? The president does have the statutory, federal statutory authority to order private industries, as Tom uh, talked to us about, under the Defense Production Act to produce critical items in support of national defense or other such emergencies as defined and expanded uh, under the act. And as Tom uh, touched on, he has uh, uh, criticized, uh, and I think rightly so, the ever expansive and ever expanding definition, uh, what I would call the capaci capacious overuse of the original definition of national defense into all sorts of other things. And you can see how over uh, the years, some presidents have uh, felt uh, they had the 
authority to use it for virtually anything they wanted. So setting that aside, uh, the use of the act, in my opinion, and I think Tom clearly stated it was his opinion, uh, to fight the coronavirus uh, is an appropriate use of the act. Now, let me turn to how it's used in practice. And don't worry, I'm not going to put my old law professor uh, hat on. Now, you know from your eighth grade civics class, for a contract to exist, there has to be an offer, an acceptance, and consideration. Consideration is, is typically money. Uh, but the Defense Production Act is not a typical government contract, at least in terms of the negotiation side of things. First and foremost, the government selects uh, uh, the company to DPA to, to tap them on the shoulder and say, you're in it. Uh, it's not an open bidding war uh, or months of negotiation. There isn't time for that. And that's not the point of the DPA. The DPA is to be used in dispatch quickly. <clears throat> Second, uh, once the company selects, I'm sorry, once the government selects your company under the DPA, that's it. You're obligated to produce the good or goods uh, that they want you to produce. So, of course, the government isn't going to be asking a commercial uh, dairy operation to produce bomb parts. Uh, they're going to select, based on prior knowledge, a company that can produce uh, the desired product with little effort, even if it's not the product that they normally make uh, in the course of their business. Think back to World War II, uh, where the DPA has its roots, which uh, Tom talks about in his paper, where car companies uh, stopped producing cars and were making tanks and planes and armaments and, and the like. Uh, those companies then and the companies today are modifying their production lines ever so slightly to make uh, hardware uh, to satisfy uh, the contract under the DPA. So when President Trump signed the executive order telling GM to make ventilators, he knew that they could make those ventilators, uh, given uh, their vast manufacturing capabilities. Next, uh, the price for the product is usually known as it's listed in a government schedule. The General Services Administration is the purchasing agent for the federal government, uh, except for DOD, uh, and they have prices on everything. If you really want to put yourself to sleep, go on the GSA website and start reading all the prices of all the widgets out there, the stuff they buy, uh, but it's listed there. So the company is required to put the DPA contract ahead, like Tom said, of all other contracts and start producing that product immediately or as soon as possible. They can't wait. They can't tell the government, oh, thanks, got it. We're going to finish uh, producing this stuff over here for this wealthy client, and then we'll get to yours. No, they have to put the DPA contract ahead of every other one and turn to and start making the products. Now, as Tom said, uh, many companies out of a spirit of patriotism or uh, moral obligation or both stepped up and volunteered to produce ventilators and masks and other PPE. Uh, to, to join the fight. And because of that, in my opinion, the president has not had to uh, use the DPA as much as he may have had to uh, had companies not uh, stepped up. Uh, and I think people who are critical of the president for not using the DPA as much as they think he should ignore the fact that many of these companies have done the right thing and just raised their hand and volunteered. One final point about uh, the DPA um, that I want to make, um, and then we're going to turn it over to questions uh, by you. Uh, do you ever wonder why uh, some politicians have been criticizing the president uh, for not 
to use in the DPA. Uh, now, set aside those who just want to bash him for whatever reason. Um, uh, here's another reason. Once the DPA, once a company is DPA, once the federal government taps that company, that's federal dollars to that company. That may not have been normally coming to that company. And companies exist in congressional districts. And so if a company gets DPA'd, that is money. Uh, and think about it. Uh, especially keep it in mind, you saw the Department of Labor just put out their uh, uh, uninsured, the, the, uh, their numbers today, 6.6 .6 million new unemployment insurance claims this week, up from 3.4 million from the week before. So once a company has a contract under DPA, those are federal dollars flowing to that company to help in the effort. And of course, it requires people uh, with jobs to produce uh, those, those goods. So that's a very superficial overview of how the DPA works uh, in practice. Uh, I would encourage you again to read Tom's uh, paper, which is available at heritage.org, uh, or go on the uh, heritage.org uh, backsplash coronavirus, uh, coronavirus page, and you can see uh, all sorts of resources related to the virus. Now we have 86 people uh, who have attended who are attending the, the uh, webinar right now, and we thank you for sticking with us. So here's how we do the uh, Q and A. Uh, first off, I'm I'm your untrained, uncompensated moderator uh, under this format. So I've moderated a lot of things at Heritage, but typically I get to look out in the audience and, and point to a hand, and they hand you a mic, and you state your name and ask a question with a question mark at the end. We're still going to do that part, uh, but you're going to have to do it via this little box you have on your screen. So please use the question mark tab and then type in your question. Uh, and I'll be able to see that on my screen. Do not use the raise your hand feature uh, or the chat button because neither of those uh, works. So if you raise your hand, hitting the button or hit the chat button, I'm just, I'm not gonna be able to see anything and you're gonna be frustrated. Uh, and last, even though you start typing in your questions, uh, they don't necessarily appear in the order everyone types them in. So I'm just gonna get a screen here on my right and I'll do my best to, to, uh, to ask your questions. And I'm just gonna try to ask them in the order they appear on my screen. Um, and uh, I can't access my email, so you can't send me an email because I can't read it while we're doing this. So let me turn my uh, question uh, button on, which it's now on, uh, and uh, I'll wait for the first question. So please jump on in and start asking uh, questions. Tom, is there anything, while we're waiting for the questions uh, button to populate, uh, is there anything that you uh, want to touch on from my remarks or just things that popped up? You know, something that struck me, and, uh, and that is uh, the executive orders that gave Secretary Azar the authority to use the Defense Production Act I don't think presidential executive orders expire unless they're specifically rescinded. Is that accurate, Kali? That's right. Yeah, and so this is just a small point, but it's interesting to me, and that is Secretary Azar already had DPA uh, priority uh, authority even before this crisis. He, he had that by virtue of a, an executive order signed by President Obama back in, in 2012. And so I think what the, the purpose maybe of these executive orders is to just to emphasize that the United States government is using every tool uh, at its disposal to kind of uh, 
uh, work on this con uh, crisis. So I just want to mention that. All right, here's, here's the first question. And Tom, I think it probably should go to you uh, by, uh, looks like a young lawyer. So maybe I'll tackle it after you uh, try to wrestle this to the ground. The Defense Department estimates that it has used the law's powers 300,000 times a year. But does that mean all of the powers under the act have been used in those instances or only some of the authorities? How is it used to fight COVID-19? How is its use to fight COVID-19 different? Over to you. Well, that's an excellent question. And as I, I hinted at in my remarks, nearly every contract the Department of Defense writes, and they write hundreds of thousands of contracts every year, has a DPA rating in it. And usually it's DO, which is put this above the other normal things you're doing. Sometimes it's DX, very rarely. I think that requires Secretary of Defense uh, type authority. And so all these contracts typically have some kind of rating. And the contracts that DOD is writing today in support of the COVID crisis, and they are doing a lot of the contracting authority. So even though FEMA may have the need uh, for some piece of equipment, if they know that DOD can get to it quicker with a contract vehicle, they're going to go to DOD and they're going to send them some money and they're going to say, can you put on contract 5,000 COTS? And the DOD, because they have an open contract vehicle for COTS, might be able to get that quicker. They're going to put in that contract a rating, either DO or DX, meaning this takes priority over your, your COT requirements for REI or all these other places that might want COTS. Now, there is another component to this, and, and Kali, you kind of hinted on it. Normally in the contracting process, there, there's a collaborative period of, here's a contract, would anyone like to bid on it? The government has the option, like they did with General Motors, to say, we're skipping that step. We're not going to even ask you, do you want this contract? We're giving you this contract, and we're telling you to perform it right now uh, under these conditions. They haven't done that very much that I'm aware of yet. Other than for General Motors with the ventilators, they have they have normally relied on this collaborative uh, contracting process, which at least includes a, a small bit of negotiation with the contractor saying, how many can you make? That's not enough. Can we get some more? Okay, here's the price. What are the delivery dates? Here's the specifications. And so there's, there, you know, there's degrees to which the DPA can be uh, implemented. There's the very directive here's what you're going to do. And the government thus far has not used that very much. And I think that is probably appropriate given where we are. All right, Tom, uh, a fellow officer from the United States Air Force, Chris Orr, uh, who also, thank you very much, is a supporter of Heritage, asks the following question. How do you foresee the Defense Production Act affecting small arms manufacturers, particularly Beretta, Colt, Glock, and SIG, and their ability to produce firearms for the civilian market versus military and federal law enforcement customers? Could we see a shortage in production of civilian market firearms, which in turn would negatively impact private citizens' practical ability to obtain the tools to exercise their Second Amendment rights? And then he ends, it's saying HUA, which I think is an Army or Air Force thing. We Navy fellows don't know anything about HUAs. Um, let, let me let me uh, quickly touch on the Second Amendment piece, uh, and then Tom turn it over to you. My colleague 
in the Mies Center, Amy Swearer, has really made a name for herself uh, on the Second Amendment in terms of her scholarship, her testimony. And I would encourage anyone on uh, the webinar, all 85 of you now, to, to look up Amy Swearer, S-W-E-A-R-E-R, -E uh, on uh, the Heritage uh, Splash page and read her scholarship. Uh, my general sense, trying to answer uh, our colleague's uh, question, is um, assuming that this is a temporary um, use of the Defense Production Act and that this virus is ultimately suppressed in the next month, month and a half or so, uh, and we try to get back to some normal sense of, of living, I don't see it affecting uh, the uh, production capabilities of of the uh, gun manufacturers. I mean, they may, for business reasons, just not be able to produce the amount of arms that they normally do because people don't have the discretionary money to spend as a practical matter. Uh, but I, you know, setting aside some of the very disturbing uh, edicts by uh, certain politicians about uh, not allowing people to buy guns even when they're available, which have serious constitutional uh, concerns. As to the Defense Production Act question that Chris asks, I don't see it being an issue yet, but Tom, let me defer and pass it to you. Uh, thanks, Kelly. I, I don't have much to add other than uh, Under Secretary of Defense uh, Ellen Lord uh, made the defense industry an essential industry. At least she declared it that way. Now, there, there is some negotiation that has to be done with states on that because they have their own definitions. But so the manufacturers that are making uh, weapons, small arms, Beretta, folks like that, uh, assuming that their state uh, agrees that uh, weapons manufacturing is an essential activity, theoretically, those plants can continue to produce uh, small arms to support both civilian and military requirements uh, for the country. All right, pardon me while I exercise my 56-year-old eyes and uh, technical abilities to get to the next question. Hold on there. I haven't succumbed to glasses yet, Tom, but I'm, I'm getting close. You need these. All right. Um, all right, this is a question from Kenneth Depew. Uh, thank you for your question, Kenneth. He says, I work for a Texas member uh, and the energy industry is taking a major hit, primarily due to the KSA uh, Russian production, uh, um, but compounded by COVID-19 and the decrease in demand. General Spore mentioned in the expansion of DPA to include energy security. Could DPA be used to help the energy industry right now and if so, what is what in in what opinion would be best be the best approach in doing so, Tom? Yeah, so that's a great question. So as the as your uh, individual mentioned, you can use the DPA uh, for energy security. So if you if you believe that we face an imminent uh, threat to our energy security, you can use it. You could you could do it in at least one way. You could so there's a a billion dollars in the Defense Production Act fund. Um, that's mostly to expand infrastructure and capacity. Theoretically, some of that could go to the uh, uh, energy sector to expand their capacity or storage. We might want to expand storage, for example, 
and then have the government uh, procure more uh, energy for its strategic stockpile or something along those lines. Um, I'm hard pressed to think of a way that the um, federal government can use the priorities or the allocations authorities to help right now the uh, energy sector. I think probably the, the best hope for the energy sector is the kind of stimulus and, and relief that you see in the CARES Act. I don't know that the Defense Production Act provides a very easily path to that. Yeah, and my recollection, Tom, is that the strategic oil reserve, which we have, uh, is under a different federal authority and would not require an invocation of the DPA. But for those of you who are interested in reading more about that, Jack Spencer is the vice president here at Heritage who oversees the department that deals with energy. And I would encourage you to go to that uh, particular website uh, on Heritage and read more about that. The next question is from Matt Schoenfeld. I think I hope I pronounced your name, last name uh, right, Matt. And it is the following. What are the congressional oversight options on these contracts established under DPA, if any, besides the reauthorization of uh, the acts they have done for 50 years? Uh, well, uh, as a pure uh, statutory matter, Congress writes statutes, Congress can amend statutes, Congress uh, can repeal statutes. And unfortunately, as Tom has written about in his paper and he's mentioned in his opening remarks, uh, Congress has seen fit to uh, expand the definition. Uh, and I think over time, uh, especially after this crisis is over, there are gonna be a lot of hot washes or after action reviews. And one of the questions I think, and Matt, maybe you can uh, get to us offline and, and uh, have us think more about it, uh, is was the Defense Production Act used appropriately here or should there be other acts that carve out uh, the other aspects of the emergency and cabinet in a different act and maybe it's like a National Emergency Act instead of the Defense Production Act. But Tom, do you have any uh, comments regarding Matt's question? No, I, I, I agree with the Cully. I mean, the, the recent CARE Act, CARES Act uh, eliminated some of the more stringent re reporting and oversight requirements that were in uh, as a part of the DPA. And so really the, the most recent legislation has kind of had the effect of opening the doors on uh, the use of the DPA versus narrowing it. And so the, I think the only recourse that Congress would have, and it's not a near-term thing, would be to ask, for example, the General Accounting Office to take a look at how the uh, DPA funds were spent during the COVID-19 crisis. But again, that's going to be a, a rearward looking um, thing versus something that's happening real time. Is rearward uh, an SAT word, Tom? Is that not, I'm not <laughs> familiar with that one. All right. Um, a question from a uh, young aspiring lawyer. Quote, the law seems to help avoid the normal bidding and contracting that slows the process of production and procurement down. But I've heard reporting about states and governors having to compete against each other for necessary equipment. What is there to be done about this to direct supplies where they are most needed? Tom, go ahead, and I have a, a thought on that yeah. as well. So I think there's probably some uh, accuracy to that. I, I can see a situation where a company like 3M, who makes N95 masks, is getting multiple orders from state governors, and they don't know which ones to fill first. And I think uh, that sounds very reasonable to me. I, I think now that the president has appointed uh, Peter Navarro, his assistant for trade, as the national 
Defense Production Act coordinator. I think Peter Navarro now has kind of a, is gonna be able to have a national view of some of these critical items. And additionally, FEMA has gotten involved. There's a rear admiral there that is now uh, managing supply chains. I think FEMA, and again, using the power of the DPA, if necessary, uh, will help be able to help adjudicate. And so you can see a situation where somebody's looking at these overall demands and they're saying, you know what? Uh, Louisiana is getting creamed right now, or New York and New York City is getting creamed. They should have first priority for at least these number of masks. And then after that, you can send them to California or Connecticut or wherever. And so I think I think this is a, probably a true statement that at the start, it was a bit confusing. I think now the federal government has got the mechanisms in place to kind of deconflict these requirements. Yeah, I'll, I'll only add the following. I, I really, uh, dislike the bumper uh, bumper stickerization of of crises, uh, but I do believe the one that we're in is that we're all in it together. That said, uh, in the interviews I've been doing recently about the Wall Street Journal piece that I co-wrote with David Rivkin, uh, some journalists are are asking questions like, states are complaining because they have to compete against other states. That's really unfair, isn't it? And the answer is no. That's the way it works. States are competing all the time against each other, setting aside the coronavirus for jobs, for talent, for people, for companies to headquarter there. Uh, there are 50 individual sovereigns. Uh, and if you have a high tax state uh, uh, that, that, that taxes you in a confiscatory manner with high property taxes and over-regulation, and you have a state next door that has low taxes uh, or no state income tax and low property taxes and is welcoming to business, gee, guess where people are going to move to? And we're seeing that from these high tax states. We're seeing the flight. And so here in the fight against the coronavirus, I mean, the federal government plays a critical role. States push health uh, information up uh, to the federal government, which then has the duty to analyze that through the CDC and other top docs, uh, and then use the vast resources of the federal government to surge uh, PPE to the hotspots, which we're seeing happening. And so it's the way federalism is supposed to work. But as a general originalist principles position, states are competing against each other. Uh, and so here we're all hopefully working together uh, and there's going to be some caterwauling. Uh, but if you're in a state where they have three people with COVID-19 that have died in another state that's losing, you know, almost a thousand uh, a week or more, uh, the, the latter is going to get the PPE and the former is going to have to wait. Um, we have one time for one more question. Um, and um, let me see who. Um, it's another competition question. Uh, all right. So uh, Jonathan Mangrum, uh, who asks the following question. Tom, and I'll direct this to you, see if you can answer Jonathan's question. Quote, were there any substantial changes to the DPA in the most recent authorization? Not that I'm aware of, no. Right, and since you were short and sweet uh, with that one, I'll ask the Nancy Pelosi question, uh, and we'll end on that one. Uh, and this is from Katie McAuliffe. Katie McAuliffe says, uh, and my answer is I have no clue, uh, but let me ask it to you, Tom. Uh, will Speaker Pelosi demand another $50 million for orchestral music under DPA? <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. There's, you know, there's, 
as you know, our congressional process is, is a negotiation. And so people, some people get what they want, some people don't. And so it goes back and forth. Uh, who knows what phase four of economic relief looks like? I think there'll be pushes just like there was in the 880-page CARES Act. Some will do better than others. And so I can't make a prediction about who wins in the next one. Yeah, and I think a lot of our attention, uh, in addition to the actual fight against the virus uh, itself, will be turning to the devastation of the economic impact, not only to our own communities, but our states and the United States. When you see uh, jobless claims go up 3.4 million, uh, this is a number that we've not seen since the great, uh, since 1929. Um, or around that time. So I would encourage you uh, who are still on the webinar uh, to read Paul Winfrey, to read some of the other scholars we have at Heritage who are analyzing uh, the effects of the virus on the economy. And I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us. Tom, thank you so much uh, for, uh, for being a, a terrific host uh, and panelist. I want to thank you for the paper. I encourage everyone to read the paper. I want to thank Adam Brinkley. Uh, for uh, producing the webinar and all those who made it possible. And Tom and I wish you all health uh, and a quick recovery to our economy. And we're done. Bye, everybody.